So for anyone who came late, my name is Sue Zappel, and I'm one of the local Dharma leaders, and I'm going to be giving the Dharma talk this morning. Those of you who've been coming regularly will often see the lovely little sign that Jean Canning offers in the morning with a heart symbol. Jean, can you hold up your, um, your little sign that says the red heart and Sangha? Um, you know, so many of us have felt that warmth and connection, that full sense of friendliness in the Sunday Sid and People keep coming back and they're willing to share and be vulnerable. And the breakout groups give us a chance to hear how others are and how it's working for them as they navigate life's challenges. And we receive inspiration and confidence and understanding. I've heard the Sangha described as Dhamma wrapped in love, which does feel so good. But this morning, I'm not going to talk about all these warm and cozy sweetness and light feelings we have in Sangha. Rather, this morning, I'm going to share some thoughts about the challenges. All those times when being in Sangha has felt hard, when maybe we've gotten our feelings hurt or felt unheard or left out or misunderstood, rejected or sad. Maybe we didn't feel like we really belonged, that the Sangha wasn't such a safe place, far from being a refuge. Perhaps when we first joined the Sangha, whether it was Seattle Insight or another, it didn't just feel particularly welcoming. You know, maybe we didn't see anyone who looked like us in terms of age, race, ethnicity, size. We didn't experience people maybe as, as especially friendly and Maybe even over time, things were said that we found hurtful or off-putting or even downright offensive. So Thich Nhat Hanh calls Sangha the community that lives in harmony and awareness. And I don't know about you, but as much as I treasure the various mini Sanghas and the big Sanghas of Sims, I've had my share of hurts and bad feelings, and I've had my share of doing harm to others. Um, so it has felt at times quite a big distance from that harmony. You know, we're all fellow travelers on this path, and we bring our full selves to this path. And every stop along the way, all the sanghas we visit, with all of our impatience, unskillful moments, patterns, neuroses, you know, whatever you want to call it, John Kabat-Zinn calls it the full catastrophe. You know, it's our entire selves, the defilements, the moments of mindlessness, the habits and patterns, in all those remnants of greed, hatred, and delusion that live in us, and they travel right along with us. You know, we all were raised in families where maybe your patterns of speech and humor were understood and welcomed, and then you bring those same patterns into the wider world and into Sangha, and you find a very different reception. One of the main sources of challenge in Sangha, I believe, comes from the second noble truth, the truth of clinging. And in this case, at least for me, it's been clinging to ideas about how things are supposed to be. 
we can find that clinging not only harmful to ourselves, but to others. And it could underride and under kind of affect in a negative way that sense of trust and connection in, the, in Sangha. There are two examples I want to share from my years with Sims. I've been very grateful, and it's been a gift that I've been with Sims since, since its beginning. And early on, I was a, the president of the board. It was just, I think I was the second or third president. It was still real early. And I had so many ideas of how we should move ahead. You know, and I knew a little bit of, I'd been on boards, and I knew a little bit about running meetings. And I made some good contributions, but boy, I also brought such firm ideas about how we should move ahead, what were the right ways of going, and that I wanted to do it now. I didn't want to wait for a few years. You know, I was impatient and just convinced of the rightness of my my views. And not only, you know, did I believe so strongly in those views and wanted to act on them right now, um, and I just held on to them for way longer than I should have. So I brought my own challenges to the Sangha, and then in that case, it was the mini Sangha of the Sims board. Another example, also from my earlier years, as you know, Sims is totally run by volunteers. And years ago, I was the coordinator of the non-residential retreats. We used to have six or seven of them. This is way before COVID. And we all of them were out at Bastyr University. And so as I am, because I'm an organizer, I had put together this whole packet of, of materials for each of the retreat managers that I had recruited. And I expected them to follow my guidelines. When one of the managers, a very nice man, one of the managers didn't follow my guidelines, I fired him. Oh, my God. I mean, who fires a volunteer in an all-volunteer organization? You know, I wasn't horribly unskillful. I mean, we, we have remained cordial. He and his wife are still part of Sims. We've done volunteering together. And he and I talked about it a year or so after the firing, you know, but with me, it was being so rigid that there was a right way and a wrong way of doing things. And he did it the wrong way. And then he admitted that he contributed to that challenge because he was kind of lackadaisical and mindless in his approach. So we all live in and with that second noble truth of clinging and in my case, and then maybe for others, there we do a lot of clinging to our views and opinions. Many years ago, way before Black Lives Matter and the murders of George Floyd and all the other young Black men, too numerous to name them this morning, before our study groups on white privilege and racial awareness, there was an episode one night in Sims where our teacher made a simple and what seemed to me as another white person, kind of an unintentional slip of language implying that the majority culture, which at that time he viewed as white, was the lens through which all, all of us experience life. And a Sangha member stood up and he was very upset and he called out the teacher for his racial insensitivity 
yes, it was a moment of discomfort. It was also an opportunity that we could have done some moving towards more clarity and healing. And But back then, we didn't really have the skills or tools to move forward. I'm hopeful and grateful that I think should that happen again, I think Tim and Tawari would help all of us, um, knowing that we have different tools and that we have the courage and humility to move forward, even if it's hard. So clinging to views and opinions and not knowing how to deal with moments of conflict or upset or dissension are two examples of those challenges that we might experience in science. And the third has to do with the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana. You know, we all of us have our likes and dislikes as humans, and we we practice this second foundation of mindfulness where we recognize the moments of pleasant and unpleasant and neither. And how seemingly without a nanosecond of pause, we go from pleasant to liking to clinging, or we go from unpleasant to disliking or pushing away or rejecting, or we go from neither like, you know, pleasant nor unpleasant, and we just zone out or avoid. We live that same kind of process in Sangha, off the cushion as well as on the cushion. You know, I like this person. They make me feel good. I don't really like that person. He or she reminds me of my second grade teacher. And unpleasant feelings arise when I'm with them. And of course, we humans choose who we hang out with and people we want to be friends with. But in Sangha, we don't choose who shows up. It's random. Whoever decides to come and sit together on a Sunday, we admit them, and here we are. This is our sangha. We don't control it. And so then what happens when you find yourself in a breakout group with someone you don't particularly like or who always dominates the conversation or who seems to have the best idea about how you should be feeling about whatever is up? What happens to us when these kinds of experiences show up in our breakout groups? Judgments, do we shut down? Do we kind of wonder whether we can really trust this group? You know, and sometimes we find ourselves so annoyed, especially, you know, here we've been on Zoom for three years. And it took me five tries to get into the meeting. And then they kept on asking me for a passcode. And then I got in and the sound wasn't working right. And and so then we find that we come in kind of out of sorts before we even ever started. You know, or maybe I like a really quiet meditation with very little guidance. And that person leading this morning was talking too much. Or I thought so-and-so was going to lead the talk this morning and instead someone else showed up and I don't like them quite as much. So there's, you know, those that second noble truth of clinging and the second foundation of mindfulness and how we deal with dissension. And then there's the eightfold path and why speech. I've been in a small sangha for a very long time. It's a group of long-standing practitioners, a bunch of women. And we gather once a month and we talk about different topics. And some of us always, we all have a lot to say. 
And some of us have more to say than others. And some years ago, after the end of a sharing by a woman where it kind of felt like she went on and on, maybe, you know, it felt like it was five minutes or longer. It was probably only a couple. But she finished and another woman said to her, I like listening to you. I just wish there was less of it. Oh, my goodness. You can imagine we all did this collective intake of breath thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this could be trouble. But instead, the woman who received the feedback was so gracious and humble. And she initiated a conversation, which we then all participated in, about our families of origin and whether we really ever felt heard and really listened to when we were growing up. So why speech can really be such a tool for us as we move ahead in Sangha. Perhaps the biggest challenge in Sangha is when we bring ourselves with a capital S. You know, we forget that the self, Tim just on Monday night said this again, the self is just another arising. And when we say, you know, I was hurt by what that, what she said or did. Well, who is actually being hurt? Is awareness being hurt? Is it actually the person present in this moment? Or is it a residual memory from the past that's been re-stimulated and then we name it hurt? Lots of possible challenges, and I only touched on a few. Sangha, in my experience, is not an automatic refuge. It takes real tending. I believe that we each have a responsibility to make Sangha a refuge. Each of us is holding Sangha together with our hearts and minds, and each of us has at least one thorn lodged in our hearts. And in Sangha, we sometimes can take out that thorn and share it and have it be healed and understood But in order to do that, we have to trust that Sangha is safe, that it's going to be safe to share that thorn. How is trust in Sangha built? One way, I believe, is to actually start from a place of trust. Taking an accounting of what is our own personal relationship to trust? You know, some of us are a bit skeptical and we come to a group and we say, okay, you've got to show me first whether I can trust you. And others of us are more like, well, we start with trust until we're proven otherwise. Neither one of them is right or wrong. It's just who you are. And just knowing your own relationship with trust can really help you navigate Sangha more honestly. Another way to tend this Sangha and to build it as refuge is to remember what it means that each of us has made a commitment to walk this path. And that commitment means that we we have an intention to live an ethical life, to do no harm, to bring that sense of friendliness that Lyndall talked about last week and that we were experiencing in our sit this morning. We bring that friendliness to our encounters, to the sanghas that we find ourselves in. So just like each of us has our own commitment to bring mindfulness and kindness to each moment, 
we remember everyone else here in the room is doing the exact same thing. And as Philip Moffat reminds us, we do it as best we can. So we give each other the benefit of the doubt. We say to ourselves, I know you. I know you. You are one of those people with a bit of dust in your eyes that the Buddha talked about. The people he devoted the last 45 years of his life to teaching. I know you. You're another human and you hurt and love and struggle and succeed. And you're doing the best you can. We trust that we can live a wholesome life on the path moving towards freedom. And we can encourage each other and do it together. And we can recognize when we're not at our best selves and we learn how to give feedback to each other in kindness. And we take responsibility for our own minds and our own speech and our own actions. Challenges in Sangha, I believe, can be a beautiful doorway into a deeper connection with the Brahmaviharas, the divine abodes, as we call them, the heart practices of metta or friendliness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. I had two really beautiful experiences of that where the challenges turned into one or more of the Brahma Viharas. And both of these experiences were in the Sims, Death, and Dying Sangha. We've had this Sims, Death, and Dying group for many years, and we do two things. We train ourselves in just deepening our understanding of death and dying. But we also offer mini sanghas to those in Seattle Insight who are facing their own death. I have found that being in one of those mini sanghas might be the very definition of challenges that open up doorways into the heart. One of my first experiences, this was oh, seven or eight years ago, there was a lovely man and I was one of the people in his sangha and he was very close to death. And he called me one day and he asked me if I could go to the store and buy him a new bedside table. And I thought to myself, what in the hell? Why do you want to buy a new bedside table? You're only going to be around for another, another couple of weeks. Of course, I didn't say this out loud. But of course, I went to the store. I bought the table. I took away his old one. I set up the new one. And then I watched the expression of pure joy on his face as he had just what he wanted for his pills and his books and the tablet to pay, play music. My meaningless objection or my view of how one should deal with their end of life turned into mudita, to joy and understanding as I saw this man who had become very dear to me, taking care of himself and living fully while he was dying. Another experience was with a man that none of us had met before, and he really hadn't been part of Sims. It was one of his best friends had been part of Sims, and he was dying in a hospital. He was a professional musician, had never really practiced the kind of Vipassana meditation we do. So he was kind of unfamiliar with it. And the three of us who were sitting with him, we hadn't really known each other very well. But somehow, we just felt the trust in each other and in ourselves and we came up with this metta meditation for him. 
he had been losing so many of his abilities as a musician, and he was having such a hard time with it. And it was just something that we knew we needed to offer him some moments of ease as he was dealing with all of these losses. So we were challenged. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know if we were doing it right or wrong, but we trusted each other and we offered him this meta meditation. And it was a really beautiful moment where we went from that challenge of uncertainty and what are we doing to meta friendliness and compassion. So we're not going to get rid of any of these challenges in Sangha. I hate to be the one to announce that. And perhaps we shouldn't even want to. So there's this wonderful Tibetan story. And thank you, Lyndall, for finding it for me. It's called the Bengali Tea Boy. And it goes like this. There was this Buddhist meditation teacher named Atisha who was traveling to Tibet to meet with people there. He had heard all these really wonderful things about the Tibetan people, and he decided that he would bring his very mean-tempered tea boy with him to offer um, the tea ceremonies. Well, tea ceremonies are supposed to be very contemplative and um, easeful, and they really serve as an opportunity for practice. Well, this Bengali tea boy, his ceremonies were really different. He threw plates, he broke dishes, he spilled the tea, he shouted, he was so annoying to everybody who was there. His tea ceremonies were a chaotic mess. So the meditation teacher, though, kept bringing the same Bengali tea boy with him wherever he went. And when he was asked why he kept bringing this terrible tea boy, Atisha said, I want him with me because he's my greatest teacher. He reminds me to be patient, to be compassionate, and he gives me so many opportunities to practice tolerance. Well, I don't think any of us causes the kind of chaos of the Bengali tea board. But here's something that one of our traveling teachers said to us many years ago, and I want us all to really hear it. Each of us is undoubtedly someone else's difficult person worth saying again, each of us is undoubtedly someone else's difficult person. Each of us at one time or another has caused harm. That impatient tone of voice, the words spoken too hastily, the meetings where we either dominate or fail to contribute, you know, those moments of mindlessness. But the heart is always available to us if we choose it. It might only be a quick thought to remember I know you, you are on the same path as me. And this path isn't easy. So I'm going to give you some room for tripping and failing. And just as I hope you give me that room. Do we get hurt in Sanda? You bet. Do we have our tender spots pushed? Yep. And have we hurt others unintentionally with words, humor, or just our lack of paying attention? Yes. But how do we move forward when this happens? We remember that we're all made of the same thing, just like the stars. Just like Thich Nhat Hanh says, we are inter-are. We're being, you know, being human isn't easy. Being on this path isn't always easy. The challenges in Sangha are real, but we can hold each other really tenderly. 
and remember that we're the ones who build the Sangha as refuge. So Gene shared his um, sign at the beginning, and I made another one that says also heart Sangha, but it says treat with care. So I'm going to do something now that I've never done before, but I practiced it. So I'm hoping that it's going to work. I'm going to share a song by Mary Gauthier. Gauthier is how you say her name. Um, she's this wonderful musician from Nashville. And the song is long. It's six minutes long. And it's called Mercy Now. And there's one line in it that I object to because she kind of implies that, that we don't all, that we don't deserve mercy, which I disagree with. And I think um, those of us who follow this Buddhist path would probably disagree with. So I invite you to take your meditation posture to relax. And I am going to try to do this. Um, sharing so thank you for indulging me with that listening to that song this was such a difficult talk for me to produce this time and and i think it's because i realized that i have a very complicated relationship to sangha and uh, perhaps some of you do as well it's um, the full, the full catastrophe, as John Kabat-Zinn says. You know, those beautiful heart connections, and then those tender times, and those hurt feelings, and those hard times, and the challenges. So um, we're going to be able to go into breakout groups now, and I'd like to invite anybody who, for whatever reason, just feels like they can't can't stay, they've got things going on. Um, and just a, a little extra invitation. If you're somebody who um, doesn't really like breakout groups, you might want to join anyone anyway and just say, I'd like to be quiet and I just would like to listen. And that's totally fine. And remember in breakout groups, we listen from the heart. We don't give advice. We're just really present with each other. So I would, um, it looks like those who are leaving have left. And um, thanks for being here. And um, okay, take care of everybody. Thanks for sharing in the, in the chat. And so we have... I'm going to create six groups. Well, maybe seven groups. Yeah, let's do seven. Oh, six groups. Okay. And either talk about, you know, maybe some of your own challenges or some of your own thoughts at how, what do you do to create, help create Sangha? as a refuge. So um, we'll have about oh, maybe 12 minutes. The groups are pretty small. Um, I think I am going to make seven groups. And um, um, enjoy your breakout groups. And I'll give you a, 
warning. And I hope that's clear. Any thumbs up as to what we're doing? Everybody? Okay, good. Thank you, Judith. <laughs> okay, here you go. Welcome back. So we have some time to hear how, what's, what are your thoughts about challenges and opportunities with those challenges in Sangha? Um, anyone, anyone, I think, um, can unmute or if you want to either raise your physical hand or go down to reactions and, and Jean, please. Uh, I have to ask this collective group the same question I asked in the small group. Am I anyone's most difficult person? <laughs> <laughs> you can raise your hand. Do you, do you expect us to admit it in front of public? <laughs> We're striving for honesty. We're striving for truth. <laughs> I, I do want to say that I really appreciated this topic because it's uh, not easy uh, to admit that in a place where we call this sacred ground or sacred space uh, that there can be conflict and disappointment and injury. Um, so I just really appreciated the awareness and the ability to, to talk about it openly. It does happen. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Jean. That's why it was a hard talk to put together. I didn't realize that um, I felt pretty tender about, about it, both when I've done harm and when I felt harm done in my direction. Yeah. Um, Thomas and then Sean and Bruce. I yeah, thanks a lot, Suze, for, for being willing to put your own um, experiences forward. I'm, I'm sure that was not easy, but I, I, I benefited a lot from listening to what you have learned and, and matured through over the years. So, so a big thank you for that. And, and I would say, I mean, I think if, if I look at my own experience uh, from, from Sims, I've also been uh, part of a Sim Sangha in the Eastern Han based Sangha for some time. And, and um, I, I, I'm definitely what you talked about with bringing the the second noble truth to that. You know, have a certain idea about what it should be and and how I should behave and how other people should behave. And, and it, it has always been a great experience being in Sangha. I think they are very great communities compared to many other communities. I part and people bring a certain intention to it, but it, it's never fully perhaps met my expectations. And I think that is that is the opportunity is to look at you know those expectations that I that I bring in, and it's been especially interesting to be with other traditions as well um, that are quite different from 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 this one and see my reactions to it and how I how I that has been in itself very very insightful and and so yeah so just a few reactions so think thanks again for a very very realistic um, talk. You're very welcome, and thanks for sharing that. Sean and Bruce. Hi. Um, 
I feel much safer in Zoom, on Zoom than I do in, in, in personal groups. Um, I have this habit of uh, trying to connect with people through using sarcastic humor. And it pisses people off. In fact, I first popped on here. I was going to say, Gene, I have something to tell you. <laughs> you are... You were one of my favorite people. <laughs> but then I realized that that kind of humor, which I'm trying to connect with people, that kind of humor puts people off. And um, I do it a lot. And um, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are, are have been bothered by that. So um, thanks for bringing this up, Suze. And Gene, I do care about you. And you're a wonderful man. <laughs> oh, boy, Sean, do I ever, I mean, Bruce, I know who you are. I just called you somebody else. But I really identify with that. I come from a family of sarcastic, kind of dark humor, and um, where we would laugh at really awful things that would happen. And I just thought everybody did that. And whew, did I learn some lessons. Of that one, yeah, yeah. Anyone else wanna wanna share? Yes, please, Helen. Thanks. Thanks. Um, that last comment just really hit home for me because um, humor is not only personal; like we all have personal styles, but it's so cultural. Um, and so, I I confessed to my breakout group that I missed most of the talk. So I'll have to um, try to find it online because of the time change. I just was thrown off, but, um, but I, it still was really meaningful, even the, the end part that I got to hear, but the humor thing for me, it's so cultural. People have different kinds of humor um, in different cultures as well as different families. And that is to me related to um, my experience just not being from the Pacific Northwest, but living here for a long time um, and hearing about how, you know, Sangha ideally is so honest and more open and direct. I mean, to be honest, there's more directness, I, I assume, in communication. And I find that this area is not like that generally. So for me, I have felt very out of place culturally, even though I've lived here for a long time, um, because my style of communication, it's not necessarily my humor. Although I also grew up in a family with very sarcastic humor. Uh, and my parents always said it was because they were Canadian. So I don't know if it's true that Canadians in general are more sarcastic, but it has been my experience with my family. Um, but just being in the Pacific Northwest, having come from the East Coast, I have really struggled a lot with um, with feeling like people are not communicating directly with me and I have to figure out what is it that they really mean or want to say. Mm -hmm. And then with being um, told I come across as too, too blunt. Wow. And it's a whole different self because where I grew up, I'm perceived as a very kind, you know, mm -hmm. person. And out here, I'm sometimes told like, I don't know, that, that it's too, I don't know, that it's too direct or something. So that the, the humor thing just brought up all that cultural, what feels like cultural conflict. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for adding that. 
when I said, you know, we didn't feel like anybody looked like us in terms of, you know, age, race, ethnicity, size, but also um, where we're from and, and how we grew up and the culture and stuff. So thanks for adding that, Helen, because I think it's a, another part of that. Um, and Julie just said that she had a, also from the East Coast and had a similar experience. Yeah. Um, we have a couple more minutes. Um, Sean, did you want to say something? I do. Um, <clears throat> Bruce reminded me of this in our breakout room. Um, I, I, since Zoom has started, it's made things so much easier for me because I have disabilities and, um, going in person sangha became, I was not able to go, um, in person and it was really challenging for me to communicate this to, to the leaders of various sanghas that the, the venue where they were holding retreats or, um, just, you know, weekly meetings was not accessible to somebody using a wheelchair. You couldn't, you couldn't get to the bathrooms. And I have a problem with heat, uh, if a room is too hot. So always trying to find a spot in the room where I could like crack a little window without people getting completely pissed off. And uh, I mean, and, and it happened a lot. So finally I just withdrew and. Then started a meditation in our home before we moved where we are now. And then Zoom happened. So I'm just ha very happy. I'd say, <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy about that because it's a non issue, but I'm bringing it up because as things maybe open up more in person or people go in person, it's like to, um, be more conscious of people who have physical disabilities. Yeah. Because it really can, it can, it can really limit, limit your participation. And I want to say one other thing. I couldn't hear the words to the song. Oh, uh, I and put I it in the chat. Okay, good. And I tried the closed captions, but that just didn't do it. But what, what I love was watching you, Suze, listen to the song, I think was even better than hearing the words. It just brought tears to my eyes watching your face. Oh, thank you. I yeah. I never get tired of listening to her sing this. And it, you know, when I was putting the talk together and I realized that um, we all are like the walking wounded, you know, or the rolling wounded or however we move around and um, bringing that tenderness to each other. Um, is pretty essential. Yeah. So um, do you can just go on online, Mary Gaucher, G A U T H I E R, Mercy Now, and um, you might get as hooked as I am to her song. So as we just end our morning together, ooh, and remembering that. We build this sacred community together with our sincerity, our commitment to the path, and our deep wishes for everyone in this group, for our own small communities, for the larger communities that we're in, and for all beings everywhere. May people be safe and protected. 
may all beings find ease and happiness. May all beings find peace. Have a wonderful day. Thanks again for coming and your attention and your participation.